0: Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working, and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. I'm very pleased today to welcome Dale Jemison to the Sustainability Agenda. Dale is Professor of Environmental Studies and Philosophy at NYU, where he's also Director of the Centre for Environmental and Animal Protection, and he's Affiliated Professor of Medical Ethics at the School of Medicine. Dale is a Scholar of Environmental Ethics and Animal Rights, and an Analyst of Climate Change Discourse. He is an author and editor of various books, including Reason in a Dark Time, Why the Struggle Against Climate Change Failed, and What It Means for Our Future. So thank you very much, Dale, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I'm very much looking forward to talking to you about your work as a philosopher in the area of climate change and the environment. Maybe before we start, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what you do?
1: Sure. So I'm Professor of Environmental Studies and Philosophy with appointments in the law school and also in the medical school and the School of Public Health here at New York University. And it's been a long and winding road, uh, too long and too winding to really tell the story here. But let me just say that I grew up in California at a time when California was pretty paradisical. And I think in many ways, uh, I've been wanting to make California and the planet great again. It's probably been one of the motivations of my work. And that's taken me to all kinds of places, including to fairly technical studies in philosophy, philosophy of language and philosophy of science, and then broadening out again uh, later with work on climate change and environmental philosophy.
0: Brilliant, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mean, we face a, a series of, of of huge interlocking environmental, social, and and uh, I mean, we're in the middle of a COVID crisis and a political crisis in America, I guess. Um, but amongst all of these uh, challenges and crises, what, what is on your mind particularly right now, Dale, and worries you the most?
1: Right. Well, with with climate change, um, I, I think. You know, it it, it is such a broad issue that manifests in every domain of life. It's, you know, it's very difficult to know what to focus on, because if you focus on one thing, you're you're neglecting other things. So there always has to be some voice that says, well, what about this? What about that? We're not really paying attention uh, to something here that we should be paying attention to. So the two aspects of climate change that I've been most concerned about lately First, what you might think of as the metaphysical challenges of, of, of climate change, the way a rapidly changing world unmoors us from the traditional sources of meaning in our lives. And then the second challenge has to do with the way that climate change interacts with our political institutions. Climate change stresses our political institutions, puts more pressure on them. And our inability to respond successfully to climate change both magnifies the threat of climate change and then also feeds back into magnifying the pressure on our political institutions.
0: Yeah, vital questions. And hopefully we we'll dig in a little bit on, on, on those late, later on. Um, a, a, an easy question just to begin with, maybe. <laughs> what do you think are the roots of the environmental crisis? Or what can we say about that?
1: Well, you know, I, I hate to put it this way, but if there's some secular notion of original sin, um, that that would probably be it. Um, you know, I we, we tend to see ourselves still uh, as sort of somewhere between God and the animals, you know, maybe a little lower than angels or something, instead of seeing ourselves really as, you know, these these African apes, the fourth species of, of, of African apes, that have certain capacities and certain abilities, that certain things we do pretty well and certain things we don't do pretty well. And one thing we don't do very well is to manage an entire planet that is now populated by 7.4 billion of us with incredible access to, to technology. So there's a way in which I think the environmental crisis is sort of the inevitable outcome. Uh, of an overpopulating, over-technologized, hubristic uh, species uh, that's gotten its hands on some very, very powerful, um, you know, technologies that were unsurprisingly incapable of managing either the technologies or ourselves.
0: Right, right. I mean, it's interesting you talk about the population there. And and, uh, also, I guess, no mention of, I guess, economics or um, uh, capitalism there.
1: Well, you know, part of the problem with these big notions like capitalism is, you know, that it's not really very clear what people mean by them. You know, in, in, in In this country, to be a capitalist is to be a good thing unless you're in the academic world in which case to be a capitalist is a bad thing um, but to really understand kind of what's behind these emotive terms you know we, we 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 i think we can understand them in lots of different ways so let me just give you two examples. My parents had i grew up in a family whose family business was the California equivalent of a bodega, do you know what a bodega is? Does that translate into British English?
0: <laughs> I don't know in Europe possibly, yeah, but yeah, um yeah
1: it's a little place where people came and they bought and sold you know everything from beer to cigarettes to juice. Uh, To whatever. And so I sort of grew up in a family in which if if, if that's capitalism, you know, namely these simple transactions between people that didn't look like such a bad thing. Um, You know, people got what they got what they wanted. We were able to eat and I was actually able to get a decent education. If by capitalism, we mean what goes on with Facebook or with Exxon or something or something like that then that's pretty indefensible for anybody who just doesn't own major major pieces of those, of, of those companies. But I like to talk about those things as crony capitalism, essentially.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't want to use the N-word because it gets overused with these neoliberalist, you know, neo- neoliberalism. But it's clear that there's, you know, a particularly financialized, globalized, deregulated, and, and, and you use the, the word you know, crony kind of capitalism that's been in place for decades have been growing and, and, and becoming more powerful and having you know, greater and greater impacts. At the uh, beginning of, of, of your wonderful book, Reason in a Dark Time, um, uh, you, you, you write, uh, we can now begin the process of understanding where the global attempt to prevent serious anthropogenic climate change failed and begin to charge a course for living in a world that's being remade by human action. And 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 uh, that's very interesting because so much of your work is, is that you're looking at the moral, the ethical and philosophical. Um, and uh, I'd be interested to get a sense of how <laughs> they, they interact with the pragmatic.
1: Yeah, well, so actually, you know the fundamental challenge that any person faces in life wherever they live is is how how should I live? How do I how do I go forward? Um, and this is a question that you face if you live in East London. It's a question if you that you face uh if you live in Bangladesh and 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 anywhere else in between. And in some ways um that is always a rough question, because the world is an always changing, always challenging place, and each of our individual lives always ends in death, um, no, no matter how much we may try to pretend that's that 's not the case, and we need to sort of have some attitude towards what what it is to live a meaningful life in in that context and the problem with that climate change forces on us in 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 many ways is it sort of takes all of the challenges that we would ordinarily face anyway of you know of of trying to create stable lives and stable societies and just societies on a changing planet a planet that has its own ideas about about what to do uh, and you You might say that we put an unforced error on top of that. That is, it's not enough that geology and physics and chemistry throw at us entropy, all of the things that they would ordinarily. We also are remaking the planet in, in ways that are incredibly rapid and uh and collectively caused but individually unintended so the first challenge there i mean so 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 one challenge is this personal challenge how to make sense of that how to live a meaningful life in the face of that but the second challenge in some ways is is just a much simpler challenge it's just to stop being stupid stop being individually stupid stop being collectively stupid Uh, that doesn't mean we're going to reverse climate change. We're going to stop climate change, that we're going to be able to step back and say, oh, it never happened. It was all a terrible dream. It just means that we're going to stop making things worse. We're going to slow down the rate of change. and, uh, And we're going to try to figure out some ways of being more resilient and adaptive. And what that means specifically, just to give you a couple of examples, I mean, they're just these obvious things. They're things like putting prices on carbon, Keeping it in the ground, all of the things that activists talk about on the one hand, and on the other side, it means that when we go around and build things that are going to hang around for twenty years in the future, like you know houses and buildings and wonderful seaside resorts, uh, we need to plan for the fact that the earth is not is not going to be stable, and 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 a lot of these investment decisions that we're making are are also are, are stupid investment in you know decisions over a ten or twenty year timeline. So it's a combination of incredibly profound challenges about how to live in the face of this combined with, in a way, things that ought to be very simple, but our societies are actually accentuating the problems and making simple decisions even more fraught and difficult than they need to be.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's something that's very interesting in your work, This the idea, I guess. Uh, that ethics and morality don't work very well with problems like uh, climate change or they haven't evolved in, 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 a, in a world where, where climate change, the kind of uh, issues that climate change brings up where cause and effect is you know, distributed over time and space and, and, and different actors and so forth.
1: Right. Uh, so, so one of the things that I think is most disturbing about events uh, in, in, in my country and in many countries in Europe as well is that as individuals, the, our, our resources for problem solving are incredibly limited. You know, we have short time horizons where sort of in cap- attention is an extremely scarce resource. I mean, all of these things that cognitive psychologists study. So what we've done is we've managed to build institutions that make us a little bit smarter than than we are as individuals. Now, these institutions are far from infallible. They don't work very well when it comes to dealing with really complex problems, even problems like climate change. Um, But things like governments, like institutions of expertise, Uh, these forms of collective decision-making allow us to do a little better than we would do on our own. But these institutions, which are very weak and very inadequate just when functioning at their best are now under incredible assault. Uh, You know, this sort of populist impulse is, uh, is, 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 is actually disabling even the weak institutions that we have that allow us to collectively navigate uh, these difficult times.
0: Yeah. 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 Very interesting. I mean, because out of the, out of the institutions, I guess, such as they are working as such as they are, um, we, the, 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 environmental crisis have tended to be framed in, 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 in very scientific and, and indeed economic terms um, and uh, ethics, morality, which are the heart of your work, less so. Uh, why do you think that is, and what impact do you think that has?
1: Well, you know, so that's so. This is a really deep question, and in some ways, I think it really goes back to the post-war culture of the 1950s and 1960s, where the countries of the West, particularly the United States, had this idea that we were beyond ideology now, that sort of all, all of the problems of the world were now under control and, and could actually be solved by experts and sort of people should just sort of shut up and get on with the business of consuming. Uh, and of course that was a silly view and it was a silly view that was fed by the global dominance that the United States in particular with a few other countries had, uh, in the post-World War II era. And it w- what was bound to happen, uh, was that the old problems of justice, of fairness, of uh, inequality of power were 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 bound to come back, and those challenges are implicit in every public decision that's made, and they are not scientific questions, and they can't be solved by science, and in fact, science recapitulates these problems by creating epistemological inequalities between between countries and between people and between social classes. Now, science is hugely important to addressing these problems, but it isn't a solution to any of these problems. And that's that's you know that that's part of why it's very difficult <laughs> to be someone with my views at this point, because on the one hand, I look at horror in horror at the anti-scientific, anti-expertise views that currently have, you know, that have gained prevalence in the last few years on the other hand, listen to the, listen to the science is not a solution to the problems that, that us.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and and, and I, over the time frames when you wrote the book, which I guess was uh, one of the first books, I mean, it was pretty hard hitting, <laughs> uh, you know, why the struggle against climate change failed. Um, uh, how has your view changed since then?
1: Well, Sadly, and I would like to think n- not just due to stubbornness on my part, my view really hasn't changed um, very much since then, uh, in the sense that I think that the failures that I described in that, in that book uh, continue to be, to be central to what we're struggling with. I would say that a couple of things have come into sharper relief since I wrote that book. And, and and one of them has to do with this whole sort of political dimension of climate change, the domestic political dimension of climate change. In work that I've done subsequent to that book, uh, much of it joint with the Italian political theorist Marcello Di Paola, we've talked about what the prospects for democracy and liberalism are in a you know for a world that is increasingly dominated by problems like climate change.
0: How important do you think neoliberalism and this move to markets? Well, so,
1: you know, <laughs> I think we're living in very dishonest times. And the fact is, nobody very much believes in markets these, these days. Um, I mean, the first thing, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about the tech industry or the energy industry or anything else like that. The first thing that happens is that once uh, an economic actor en- enters a market, Gain some market power. The first thing they try to do is to put everyone else out of business, basically, and by enlisting the government to help them put everyone else out of business. Um, and, and you know, sort of talk about markets has just sort of become power politics in a different in a in a different language. Markets are for other people. They're 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 not for the people who claim to be advocating them. So 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 I'm actually. You know, it, it, it's not that I think that all problems can be solved by well-functioning free markets. Not at all. I mean, the beginning of problem-solving is is the limits of where free markets uh, end. But the but the problem is is that is that people who advocate markets don't really believe in markets, and then many of the critics of capitalism and neoliberalism are not actually reacting. To the failures of markets, they're reacting to the perfidy of these corrupt institutions that hide behind the rhetoric of market based policies.
0: Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes and aims to break the link between natural resources, conflict, and corruption. From its first campaign, which shut down the Rouge's illegal logging industry, to blood diamonds, anonymous companies, the brutal killings of environmental activists, Global Witness's hard-hitting investigations and tenacious advocacy galvanise global change. Global Witness doesn't just track and expose corruption, it works to transform the systems that allow corruption to flourish. Find out more at globalwitness.org. Human ethics and morality. Uh, again, uh, we, we see the way the the. I mean, we've got the IPCC, and, and what you've you've uh, wonderfully uh, analysed the, the 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 various ways climate diplomacy have evolved, and and uh, o- over decades, uh, we've got governments, we've got a lot of economic institutions, you know, the the, the Bretton Woods and, and all, all of that kind of thing. When it comes to questions of of, of human ethics and morality, wh- where should we look?
1: Well, you know, we have wonderful traditions, and um, and of course, we in the West have been way too provincial, you know, and sort of looking synoptically at other traditions. Um, but insofar as we sort of stick our heads out of our own culture and look around, um, I, you know, I think the traditions of moral philosophy and moral reflection, you know, teach many of the same languages and many of these traditions so um so again let me just give two examples this point that i was making earlier that we're living in very dishonest times in which you know liars are calling other liars liars basically is is about as far as truth uh seems to be getting in these times but there's an old teaching in the confucian tradition that the beginning of wisdom of wisdom is the rectification of names um that's something we could we, we we i mean that's another way of saying we need to be truthful as the basis for sort of where you know any attempt to reconstruct an ethical society has to be have, has has to begin so that's one point the second point is to say that human life has always been rough it, it didn't just start you know, being rough in 1980 or 1990 or with the discovery of climate change. And so the human story in every culture, in every society, is some kind of story of resilience and adaptation and response to change. So in that sense, we shouldn't see ourselves and the challenges that we face as being so exceptional or unprecedented the the world we're creating and the pressures we're putting on ourselves and the unnecessary and unforced nature of some of the challenges and the scale of them may be unprecedented, but 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 people have lived through really hideous things. In fact, you know, World War II, for that matter, essentially decimated much that was valuable in 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 European culture. I mean, it was kind of an unprecedented horror. But within 15 or 20 years, there was a kind of rebound. It was La Dolce Vita in Italy. Um, It was all kinds of things that were happening all over the the continent. And that didn't in any way mean, it didn't lessen the horror of what preceded it. It just tells us something about the resilience of individual people and being able to live their own lives with meaning and fulfillment. However horrible the circumstances from which they have emerged or are still living in
0: yeah yeah cuz in in i think in a recent talk uh, on youtube you were talking uh, about about um the vulnerability of of lim- liberal democratic I- ideals to the changes that are underway and coming back to what you were saying maybe the the political structures in place are are, are in some ways not fit for purpose Before you even get to look at the the environmental crisis, it's hard not to, you know, the the world is out of balance in so many ways. Huge, massive, you know, military budgets, you know, trillions, tens of trillions of dollars in offshore tax havens, you know, continuing poverty at the same time as massive concentration of wealth. That's before even, you know, uh, thinking about the ecological side of things.
1: Yeah, and those are examples of what I would call these these stupidities that help to just, you know, structure the problems, the problems that we face. I mean, a world that is radically unequal and unjust is a world which is very ill equipped to approach almost any problem that it, that it faces. I mean, we see this now with the COVID problem. I mean, um, it's not a solution to any public health crisis that involves infectious diseases. For rich people in rich countries to build walls now, walls of vaccines around themselves. Um, the world is just too holistic and permeable for that to be a real solution. And yeah. what's true of infectious diseases is also true of, of of economic sustainability and ecological sustainability and 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 everything else. I, I mean, going back to the sort of political challenges, I think. Um, I, I mean, part of what makes this crisis very difficult to see beyond is that the traditional Western liberal tradition has provided us with many things that we take as sort of presuppositions of our lives and can't imagine living without. And those things include the ability to express ourselves freely, even when it annoys other people. Uh, the idea of having a private sphere, a private domain where we can make choices about how we want to live and who we want to live with and how we want to live with them and so on. At the same time, we're living in a world in which it's clear that we need uh, much, a much greater ability to organize ourselves and to, and to live in some kind of, co- if not cooperative at least, Conforming way, uh, or else we are not going to deal with these problems like climate change and problems like um, pandemics that actually require an enormous amount of individual conformity, either driven by state power or by the ability of people to self organize and cooperate. So, on the one hand, what we tend to value most, which is this ability to live our individual lives, just does not play very well with the kind of behavior that humans need to engage in if we're going to actually survive in the kind of world that we've created.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, interesting. You use the word "stupid." Um, what, what do you mean by that? I, it, it's, I suppose it's a, a bit apolitical as saying it's stupid because there are power relations here as well. There are economic forces at play. You know, there are there, there are some of these decisions that are made. They're in the interests of particular economic groups and be it a corporation or you know wealthy individuals and so forth. So these decisions are made. I was just wondering you you, you meant used the word stupid" a few times. what What does it mean, and what does it mean if we keep making stupid, stupid you know decisions?
1: Yeah, honestly, that is a great question. so and it you know and part of what is complicated, I think, about all of these issues is that is that on the one hand, you're absolutely right that there are structures of power and domination that seek to perpetuate themselves that condition and underlie everything we do. So as an example, um, we are not going, I mean, every, every time there has been a major social change where you're trying to get unjust institutions to stop behaving in an unjust way, ultimately, the only way you get them to do that is by paying them off, by essentially bribing them to cease their injustices. So the classic case of this, of course, was the British abolition of slavery, where it wasn't the slaves who were compensated for the injustices of slavery. It was the slave owners who were compensated for giving up their injustices. The same thing's gonna happen with the fossil fuel industry. The only way to get the fossil fuel industry to stop destroying the planet is essentially to compensate them for foregoing in this destructive behavior. So, so the basic point you're making is exactly right. There are structures of interest that drive these injustices. At the same time, um, the actors behind all of this are, again, we're back to the fourth species of African ape. And how we construct an idea of our interests uh, you know, the, I mean, the idea of what my interests consist in is not something that's given to me by God or by the structure of the universe or anything like that. It's it, it, it's a construct that's that's based on on my psychology and my value system and so on. So so and that and that's where the stupidity enters. So so let me just again make this vivid by I mean suppose that you happen to be a billionaire. You might think that actually a more egalitarian distribution of resources might be more in your interests than you personally getting the second billion. Why? Because a more egalitarian distribution of resources might mean that the potentially unruly masses and instabilities in the system might actually settle down in a way that allows you, you know, to live your very nice life uh, on your billion dollars but we're actually now living in a society in which for many billionaires the second billion is more important to them um, than any concern about the stability of the society that's generated the first billion and to some extent that's because of a kind of competition game among the billionaires uh, who are very concerned to be richer than, than than each other that's the sort of thing that i mean by stupidity i mean um, you know, if, if it were just a matter of really core interests and uh, and not a kind of gamesmanship and a sort of playing very loosely and stupidly with things of really fundamental importance and core vulnerabilities, we would still be <laughs> facing very serious political and social problems. Uh, but they wouldn't be as extreme uh, and sort of you know, panic-inducing as the ones that we actually face.
0: Yeah, very, interesting, very deeply embedded values as well underlying these. I guess in terms of uh, the, uh, I guess again, it, it ties. I mean, it's 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 cultural, but also I guess tied into socioeconomics as well. The idea of success, or you know, the idea of of. Uh, that, that people who, who make money who have 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 done it through innate skills and abilities, and people who don't don't have those skills and abilities and things, and that, that idea is it seems to be quite deeply embedded as, as well. Um, I, I'm interested. You were talking about the uh, about COVID and, and, and response to COVID. Um, it, uh, lots going on, and I know you you've written about this and so forth, um, uh, and lessons and insights. Uh, Actually, I just lost what I was going to say. I, what was I going to say? I had an, an interesting point here. I was interested in um, the... Uh, oh, yes, yes, yes. Oh, okay. So, uh, yeah. Um, I, I interested in, in in your... your. I know you've been thinking about uh, what the lessons are from COVID and uh, there, there are many, many different aspects from, from various kinds of incompetence and, and competition and, and, and I guess, the underlying uh, na- nature of the, the virus itself and uh, being a first-time uh well in our recent history uh you know viral pandemic of, of that of that nature but um you know there there was an idea in the air until quite recently that um you know this idea of a globalised economy that, that, that really uh, it, it was all global and there was very little that governments could really do um, you know, big institutions and there was so much money and capital flowing and so forth but what we've actually discovered is that that's far from being the case in fact you know, we're now checking our, our, our you know, online news every, every few hours to find out what we're allowed and not allowed to do um, which, which uh, presages a, a very different vision of, of the way in which the state can be an actor Um, and this this can possibly be a a, a positive thing going forward. I mean, certainly it can go various different ways. I'm just wondering what you think about that.
1: Well, so yes, and this goes back to that sort of conflict or paradox that we face between this sort of legacy of liberalism, which is about individual rights and the ability to make our own choices and, and, you know, and sort of, collective ways of going forward are based on voluntary consent and self-organization on the one hand, as opposed to authoritarian mandates on the other hand, which can come from the state, they can come from the church, they can come from the party, they can come from your neighbors, they can come from a lot of different places and be, be equally rigorous. And, um, you know, and here I think, as what, you know, when I wrote the climate change book, in some ways, my main concern in reason in a dark time was to sort of give people a good slap in the face and say, look, let's grow up and recognize that we failed to solve this problem. Because there's no way forward without, you know, that, that that's any good, that doesn't recognize and come to terms with the failures. As long as we keep pretending that, you know, one last chance to save the planet, it's all good, it's all, you know, positive, we just need to... And, 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 I mean, that's just a recipe for success. And I think there's something like that that's very much going on with the COVID thing. I mean, what cannot be spoken of, at least in the United States, is that when it comes narrowly to addressing COVID, the Chinese response has been the most successful one. Now, there's all kinds of reasons to not like the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party, its role in the world, any number of other things. But if you don't at least recognize the fact that the ability to mobilize people and to create conformity around public health mandates, along with a respect for the competence and science that back them, uh, it was absolutely central to addressing the pandemic. Then I think we're disabled in even understanding the core of our own of our own failures, which I think essentially are around a disrespect for expertise and an inability in our system to get people to self-organize and cooperate and create behavioral conformity in a way that. Is necessary to address this 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 problem.
0: Yeah, I think there's definitely a a, a, a real polarity in, between you know countries like Britain with the no such thing as a society and 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 some of the more collectivist or you know Confucian ideals, whatever else is going on in China as well, <laughs> as, as as you say. Um, uh but that's very interesting um you talk about the uh i'm interested in in coming back to the the, the moral perspective and thinking because as you say, it, it always comes back to i guess to 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 an individual uh, uh moral perspective how does that play out socially i just um, an individual moral uh you know, what 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 determines whether it's a moral high point in a society or, or 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 less so and i'm also interested i guess in this uh i'm sticking to questions here but this this question of um we tend to think about you know uh well every time we go out and drive the car or go shopping and and you know increasingly aware of the our, our carbon footprint and 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 you know what's how, how to balance that or to be fair or you know, the, the, the moral side of that weighs upon us. I think, uh, certainly in s- some segments of the, the population, what about the the, 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 you know, and you can see that playing into people's decisions about, you know, what's going on holidays or, uh, flying versus driving or, or kind of things like that. What about when it comes to being part of a society that's not working, you know? Yeah. And, and so, how, how how do how do you what would a moral lens how how would that uh, how would you look at at at, at what am I try to say how would a moral lens frame that in terms of understanding and action I really have built in too many questions there so yeah so, so right
1: that's no, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so that's good Fergal. so but so let's just take it take a step back and the so in a way the thing that was that has been missed I think in the political culture of the United States certainly, and I think in the UK as well, in this sort of second half of the 20th century and present, is that every social change has at least rhetorically um, some moral commitment or some set of moral ideals uh, at its core. Now, that doesn't mean that that's really what drives the change, or that it's the most important causal factor it's It's rather that that moral framing becomes essential to making the sort of transition from this being a good idea in theory to something happening in practice and it it really I think doesn't really matter what you know whether you're talking about the collapse of communism uh you know which what brings people into the streets is not you know, is, is a sense of the moral failure of these states, whether it's the kind of really remarkable change in attitudes towards same sex relationships uh, where there's been sort of a real moral reframing around um, the nature of the family and, 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 and what it means to love someone. So, so at, at a kind of societal level, it's very difficult to actually uh, organize people and bring about any kind of change without there being some kind of moral appeal um, at its core. Now, you know, and, but we've been sort of, you know, led by elites that think that economics, you know, should sort of be the language of, of, of society or political realism or something like that. Um, And, People point out, quite rightly, that you don't actually get collective social change just by adding up uh, individual moral commitments. So you don't actually, say, get Britain uh, into conformity with Paris, the Paris Climate Agreement by counting on each individual person. Um, to behave ethically with respect to their own carbon footprints. It, you know, and so, but from that, people then sort of infer wealth, and so it's got to be about economics, it's got to be about politics. But the missing term here is that unless people have a moral commitment uh, to want to bring their society to a different place, they are unwilling to accept the policies, the changes in the structure of the economy, uh, that are requ- that, that are required to do that. So the the role of I mean, so where morality really intersects with society is that I want to live a particular kind of life. And I recognize that it's very difficult for me to live that kind of life, unless I do it in a society that actually provides uh, nudges, encouragements, and constraints uh, that will help me help me live in that way. Um, I for example, I want to be vegan. It's very hard to be vegan in a society where we shovel money uh, by the ton out to the animal agriculture industry. Um, it's much easier to be vegan in a society uh, in which you don't subsidize the torture of animals in in, in in factory farms. How do you get rid of those subsidies? You don't do it through economic analysis. You do it essentially because people say it's wrong or it's immoral to be subsidizing. Uh, this this kind of agriculture so that's where the link actually comes in it's not that it's not that social change and reorganizing a society happens through the addition of each individual changes in moral behavior it's rather that there has to be some collective moral ideal that underlies the desire for change that then sort of encourages and helps and supports people in living the kinds of lives that they want to live
0: yeah very interesting you 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 spent some time thinking about social change and, and you've talked about some of the, the your insights. Do you think the arts, the humanities have a role to play in, in terms of communication, again, in, in, a, in a landscape which is very scientistic or scientific and economicistic? Or, um, the humanities, you know, we, we, we develop these models that look decades into the future, but it's looking through a very singular lens.
1: Yeah, I mean... The arts and humanities. So, in a general way, the arts and humanities are hugely important. I mean, I mean, nobody ever fought, uh, went to their death fighting for the result of a benefit-cost analysis. You know, um, they go to their death in the search of a kind of ideal that's articulated to them in a way that we understand through music, through art, through movies, through, through all of these things. But I think there's sort of a deeper question here um, as well, because when it comes to thinking about social change, uh, you know, it's like that old story that generals are always fighting the last war. All we can really do as analysts of social change is to actually try to look back and try to understand these changes that have occurred. But the lessons, I think, you know, are easy are easy to get wrong. And so let so, so let me give you an example here. Um, I think that when I mean so so what's characteristic of social change? Well, one is that it tends to be unpredictable ex ante. So um, you know, everyone is we're, we're always surprised by the dramatic social changes that occur. Uh, but then in retrospect, they look obvious, like who could have missed that? They, you know, how, how, why were we so surprised? But yet we'll still be surprised by the next one. Um, we also tend to be surprised by the unanticipated consequences of those social changes. We can talk about these things in more detail in if you want. But here's the thing I really want to bear down on. Usually the the network of actors that's bringing about that change, uh, it is, is taking place in a way that tends to be relatively invisible to the, to the dominant society. And here we can go back and talk, for example, about what the invention of printing did, uh, and book publication and how, and the role that it played on the 18th century revolutions, for example, Um, you know, a kind of new form of social bonding, a new way of making communication, a new way of creating social solidarities and diffusing ideas. I actually think that's going to seem like a weird jump, but, but as we're recording this podcast, there's just been, a, you know, a coup attempt in the United States, where um, you might think the insurrection stage of an ongoing coup attempt in the United States. And much of the communication and organization and solidarity building among those who have been sort of trying to bring about a different political structure in the United States has come about through various forms of conspiracy theorizing and various dark sites uh, on on, on the internet. I mean, the best known one of these is, of course, the QAnon um, analysis, but but there are others as well. And I think once we peel back these layers... What's going to become increasingly obvious is that there's been this system and platform of organization through the use of symbols that's very much like it it is a version of the arts and humanities. I mean, QAnon is almost a kind of game, kind of multi dimensional uh, uh, game. And I think it's done a lot to provide the kind of sinew and structure uh, for this political. Challenge this this political movement. And that's an example of a case where, you know, we're thinking, how can we get into a climate change-friendly world? We think of the usual institutions, you know, popular science, religious institutions, you know, whatever they may be, when really meaningful social change, I think, uh, often comes out of these new institutions of solidarity and communication, that have hitherto been invisible until the change begins to actually bubble up in society.
0: Yeah, very interesting. And and this question also of new communication media and this whole question of I mean, there's such a polarized uh, uh, America, particularly politically, but also increasingly in, in in many other countries in the world. And I uh, think uh, Daniel Kelman, who's a German or Austrian writer, has written latest books about, I think it's called Till, but he he, he he says that, you know, he traces the 30 years war that a lot of the kind of uh, what was going on before then was also kind of fake news, which associated with the the, the proliferation of new of pamphlets and so forth. So, you know, new media, uh, fragmentation of, of, of consensus about what's, what, what's happening and a polarisation. And and clearly, um, I, I'd be interested in getting your view on, 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 on what's happening in America. I mean, it's interesting that we you mentioned China and and clearly that's a big role to play going forward in in dealing with the environment for for many reasons but also clearly America and it's been a you know an American century um, and and, and this extreme polarization and and you mentioned this coup and and, and so forth and and, and when people were trying to understand how so many people voted for Trump and uh, you know they pointed to some people said it was to do with his, his understanding of the economically marginalized and the excluded and, and you know, and the genuine concerns of segments of the American population. But when you see the coup and so forth, you, you see that it, it was a much broader uh, group of people, at least in, involved in the coup, but that, you know, there were other motivations, that, not purely, you know, economic exclusion, that there are other values that are coming into play that are very important. And similarly, you know, looking at America, when it comes to climate change, there are very uh, deeply uh, opposing sets of, of values around around uh, climate change and uh, understanding it, and, and it's not necessarily that ignorance it comes is 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 an issue because you know some, sometimes the people who have the strongest views pro and and uh, that understand it the best or understand it the least know no more. So I just wanted to get a little bit of a, a sense of what you your sense of the I guess the values that are in play in this kind of polarized political moment
1: yeah so um it's, it's, so let me give you two different ways of looking at this. One is just in a narrow way at the trump phenomenon basically um, the United States has been polarized now for some time um, around uh, these issues of inequality um, combined with a set of social issues we, regarding you know feminism and race and so on and and trump the trump phenomenon is primarily just the republican party plus racial resentment Um, that's what elected trump and that's the core of his voters and this is actually well documented in the in the political science analysis particularly of the 2016 election it's a bit early for the for for the 2020 election, but there's something deeper at work here and um, and, and and part of it is this so the, so compared to European societies, the United States has never really been at least in in my lifetime a very political country in the sense that we have never had very high levels of, of 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 voting. Our political parties are not very ideological. They're not very ideologically consistent. Um, they've always been sort of coalitions of interest groups. Um, you know, even in Britain, when parties run on manifestos that they're then expected to implement. Um, political party platforms in this country have never been much except statements of aspiration. And in the last election, the Republican party didn't even have a, (laughs) didn't even have a platform. Um, So on the one hand, the United States has never been a very political society in the sense in which European societies are political. Secondly, the American going back to the constitution and then The practices that have grown up around that have created extremely high barriers of entry for political participation. Now, yes, you can write letters. Yes, you can show up at a meeting and so on. But any decision, any political decision that's made in the United States is just full of layers of review, reflection, what in the political science literature are called veto players who can sort of take some decision and essentially keep it from happening and so on and so forth. And I think the combination of a sort of unpoliticized and unknowledge, you know, society combined with a very complex and distant political system, which is very hard to enter, has tended to create... uh, Kind of a a lot. Lo, I mean, it's a little bit like what Marx used to call the lumpen p- proletariat, except it's except it's much broader than that. <laughs> it includes a lot of people, you know, who are economically quite well off, but just a large population of people with no particular ideology, who just feel incredibly alienated from the governance of the society. And you know, if you just look at the images uh, of the people who are overrunning the capital. Um, you know, I mean, it kind of looked like a uh, (laughs) Comic-Con, you know, event. These people could have been left, they could have been right, they could have been anarchists, they could have been, you know, if you just, if you didn't look at the Trump hats or whatever, uh, it's just sort of a population of, um, you know, of people who are just feeling really alienated from this institution that in some way they're trying to occupy. It's a bit of an Occupy movement in, 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 in that sense, they're the tip of the sphere of the spear. So underlying that is that whole structure of interest and, and, and power and racial resentment that we were talking about. But then on top of that, you also have this, I think, growing and growingly increasingly militant uh, population of people who can sort of be turned in a lot of different directions in terms of political causes, uh, but are sort of primarily motivated by, you know alienation anger and in enti- the sense of entitlement
0: yeah and when it comes to the the uh, attitudes to the environment and to climate change is there a connection
1: well you know this is what's been one of these has been really frustrating uh, to me is that if if you could actually get people to vote on i mean when you would talk about trump in the last 4 years um, it was really hard to get anyone to focus on the environmental policies of the Trump administration. There, you know, that a large fraction of Trump voters, you know, don't believe in the environmental policies uh, of, of 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 that administration. But all of that just becomes invisible and obliterated uh, behind the sort of big man, you know, nature of the political era that he that he ushered in
0: yeah yeah um but very interesting the work that's been done around the values and and, and you know i guess the polarized the republicans the democrats and and something that uh well, well we'll see what happens now with uh it seems to be momentum in terms of the control of congress the senate and 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 uh and, and biden as well um we want to that'll be unfolding but what makes you optimistic today finally dale all in all Right.
1: So, um, so I, think, I think there's two things. So one is a sort of temperamental thing, which is um, the, the stance towards life that is natural for me is to think like a pessimist and live like an optimist. And um, so even if there's no particular thought that I have that's an optimistic thought, um, you know, things do tend to reduce to this core of how am I going to live my life? Um, How am I going to align myself with my values? What side am I going to be on? Um, You know, whatever the consequences, whatever the outcomes, however, however the world looks. And so there's always something under my control, even if it's not how the story ends or how things turn out. So that always gives me a sense of optimism uh, every day knowing that it's my day and I can make those choices about where I'm going to put myself. But when it comes to issues, I think um, they tend to segment for me. So um, I'm not very optimistic about climate change, I'm not very optimistic about nuclear weapons and nuclear proliferation which I think is really the single greatest threat that we face. But I am optimistic about changes in our attitudes towards animals. And I do think uh, in in much of the world, I, almost everywhere, um, people are beginning to see themselves as relatives of other animals that live on this planet and are showing greater concern for their welfare. Not great enough concern, but greater concern for their welfare. And that's really important, I think, morally and ethically for its own sake. But it's also um, a way of bringing about much greater kinds of systematic change. So just take the whole area of factory farming and animal agriculture as we come to see ourselves more as brothers and sisters with other animals we're less inclined to raise to eat them we're less inclined to raise them in factory farms and if we do that we're also going to cut back on our greenhouse gas emissions we're going to make more of our agricultural surplus available for feeding other people and we're going to pollute our waterways and our local uh, airsheds less as well so i think the kind of window now which looks most optimistic for value change uh, has to do with the human attitudes towards animals.
0: All right, that's very inspiring and very interesting. And also is, I think, uh, whole, we have a whole other, <laughs> uh, I, I feel like I've, I've asked so many questions, but we have a whole other uh, episode about, about philosophy because there are many who, who 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 would say that at the root of, of some of the problems in Western civilization is is our relationship with nature, you know, mm-hmm. this uh, our dominion over nature, or whoever it gets framed, but you know that idea of a instrumental view of of of, of other sentient beings. So it's very interesting you say that because that will obviously ha- ha- have you know impact and unfold in in, in many ways. What well, what's next for you, Dale?
1: So um, I tend to work on things kind of at a more practical level and at a more, at a more theoretical level. So I would say that um, some of the things that I'm working on these days, we've already really talked about, which is this whole relationship between liberalism, democracy and authority and the Anthropocene. Um, some of these ideas about social change, how to understand social change, what, what makes it possible, what are the keys to social change? Those things are very much on my mind. But on a somewhat more practical level, there are two other topics that are on my my mind. So I have a project that's based in Shanghai that's called Bending the Curve. And this is a project that is directed towards in our own small way, in whatever way we can manage, towards bending the curve on meat consumption in China. Um, And that's a hugely important issue. whether we're talking about uh sort of the ecological health uh, of china as a country whether we talk whether we're talking about the health of chinese people but also uh, a lot of the future in terms of greenhouse gas emissions depends on how meat heavy uh, the diet becomes in china how far they go in the direction of western dietary habits so that's a project that takes a lot of my time and energy and concern. And then the other project that is a more practical one is I'm very concerned about what conservation might mean in the in the Anthropocene. I think the models of conservation that we have are mostly, uh, you know, kind of triage models. We, we have no idea what this is all supposed to look like in the 22nd century or what the long-term goals are. And we really don't have much sense of what real long term success looks like. We have tons and tons of conservation groups, each of which is doing good work and parades its successes, but collectively it's clear that this is all failing. So I think we need some new imaginative thinking in that area. And that's one of the things that I've been trying to start thinking about.
0: Well, very full very plate there, Dale and uh, very interesting work. And thank you so much for for joining me today and and sharing your your views, your research, your ideas, your inspiration, and I wish you the very best with your ongoing work.
1: Thank you so much, Ferdinand. It's been a pleasure to talk to you.
0: If you like what you heard today on the sustainability agenda, we think you'll enjoy Roman Krsnarek's thought-provoking new book, The Good Ancestor, How to Think Long-Term in a Short-Term World which explores how we need to expand our time horizons to become good ancestors and plan and take action that will resonate over the coming decades, centuries. Available online and in all good bookstores. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.